Well, welcome everyone to this Sunday Sazenkai. The name of this talk today is What Are We Searching For? Mm-hmm. What I'd like to do is going back into a little bit of um, Buddhism 101 to begin with. One of the things that the Buddha said in response to, I think, a particular question, which was very philosophical or theological about whether an enlightened person gets reborn again or questions about whether a God exists or whatever, is that he said, basically all I'm interested in is suffering and the end of suffering. And that's, that's the essence of what his teaching is. Now some Buddhist scholars are just, um, after researching this a little bit, want to quibble over the words and so on. But basically the, the message was that, that um, his teaching was a very pragmatic one just interested in suffering and the end of suffering. And in many ways, the Buddha was more like a a medical doctor or a psychologist. He wasn't interested in theological issues. It's kind of like the psychological suffering now. We're in a state of restlessness and unease and dissatisfaction. What do you want to do about it? Mm -hmm. Here's a treatment. Here's a treatment plan that will help you deal with that. And uh, when people hear the word suffering, the, the Buddhist word being dukkha, and it's often translated as suffering, some people struggle with relating to that word because dukkha has many different nuances to it and variations to it, and it's on a spectrum. And when we, he- when we hear the word suffering, we often think that's something that sounds a bit too extreme. You know, cause that, but what suffering is referring to is often acute suffering, like acute pain, acute grief, acute distress. But the word dukkha means dissatisfaction as well, which is kind of like the chronic end of suffering. Something which is not necessarily acute, but it's just something gnawing away at us a lot of the time. Restlessness, dissatisfaction, unsatisfactoriness kind of hollow sense that something's not quite right. That's what we're, we're all experiencing to one degree or another. Uh, not necessarily acute pain or acute psychological distress. And some of you may know this, but the word dukkha is actually a word which is onomatopoeic, um, just like the word um, hiss, you know, describes the sound of a snake. Dukkha actually describes the sound of um, a cartwheel on a rickety axle, you know, going around roughly, like dukkha, 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 as it goes around. And um, that was a very, a very good metaphor for describing the way that we relate to our suffering. You know, so through Dharma practice, it's not as though we stop suffering, that we stop feeling pain. Um, but rather the way that we relate to it really shifts because we're no longer separate from it, we're no longer trying to escape from it and it's in that that transformation, it's not that suffering ends so much but rather um, the suffering we put on top of suffering ends and then there's a, a peace and a sense of satisfaction arises out of life because we're not trying to escape it anymore. Mm-hmm. 
And as you know, Buddhist basic psychology is that we, um, we, we, we run after, we, we grasp at the things we want to have which are pleasant, you know, and favourable to us, and we have an aversion and run away from things which are painful and unpleasant. Basic Buddhist psychology. And of course we can't do that. It's impossible to do that. And the more we're caught up in that dynamic and that dilemma, the more that we suffer. And when we realise that um, life is transient, there's nothing you can hold on to, and nothing is substantial in the sense that nothing has any enduring separate existence, everything is just interconnected to everything else, right? including ourselves. Once we really understand that that's the way life is, then suffering in the conventional sense of the word ceases because we're, we're kind of one with the facts of life, if I can put it that way. But all of that is intellectual. Right. And that's just that's just um, that's just uh, the doctor telling you what the treatment plan is. Right. This is the problem. This is the treatment plan. But say if you if you had cancer, you know, and you went to a doctor, and he said, "Well, this is the treatment plan. You could do surgery and radiotherapy and chemotherapy and change your diet and do exercise." Well, knowing all that doesn't cure your cancer, does it? Actually, when you have the surgery or you have the treatment or you change your diet or you start exercising, it's the actual doing of something which will make a difference in some way. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's what we know about practice. That's why we're here today. Is that we can read the books. We all know it intellectually what the issue is. Um, but we put a day aside and practice together um, as a way of um, actually realising this for ourselves in some way. But it is, it isn't, from a Zen perspective, it's just simply not enough to know intellectually um, that that is what the issue is. And it's an issue for all of us that even though we know intellectually that's what it is, nevertheless, we all of us, to some degree or another, futurise what is... Uh, where we're going. You know, if I keep practicing or I keep doing this, I keep following the Buddhist path, then one day I'll be liberated and I won't suffer anymore. We're all doing it to one degree or another. Let's not fool ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's why in um, Haku and Zenji's Song of Zazen, it's those wonderful words that we're like a child of a wealthy home wandering among the poor. Um, like, like a, a, a person, uh, what's it? Someone in the midst of water crying out in thirst. That's us. Right, that's us here now. Mm -hmm. That's what we're doing. So they're, they're wonderful reminders um, of the, that there's not some place in the future, you know. That's going, that we're going to find some liberation is that it's actually Zen training keeps reminding us over and over again it's right here, we may not be able to see it very clearly but it's right here mm -hmm. now let me just um, 
uh, talk to you a little bit about some of the more specific ways in our culture um, that we go uh, searching for things. One is a searching of the heart mm-hmm, rather than a searching of the mind, but it's a searching of the heart with this myth that we're all, all sold through novels and pop songs and so on, that there's a soulmate out there for us. Right? And if we just search hard enough and long enough and spend enough, you know, sort of hours on Tinder or whatever, <laughs> or the internet, we'll find our soulmate, right? And then when we find our soulmate, everything will be okay, right? That is a myth that is out there, right? It's a very strong myth. And probably we're all influenced by some degree or another too. So whether we're single or whether we're in a long-term relationship, particularly when it's not going well, we might start to fantasise, you know, that there's actually a better person out there for mm-hmm. um, But if we were truly awakened, if we were truly awakened, everyone we came across would be our soulmate. Mm-hmm. Everyone we came across would be our soulmate. Mm-hmm. And in times when a relationship is, is being um, difficult, it's maybe worthwhile remembering those words from Torres Enji's Bodhisattva's vow that maybe your partner is the merciful avatar of Buddha <laughs> who's come along to awaken you from your delusions and attachments. Mm-hmm. So that is one way that that is one way in our culture, maybe in all cultures, but I think particularly in our culture, with this idea of romantic love, you know, and, and, and that kind of perfection that will be met, um, has an impact on us, that we're, we're looking into the future for something that will come along and save us. Um, like in, even in Buddhism, there's, I think it's Amitabha Buddha who's going to come along and save us in the future. Mm-hmm we don't get awakened now. Then there are other ways in which people search. Not necessarily it's a searching of the heart, um, but it's a searching of the mind. And uh, whether, it's, um, whether it's in the area of uh, science, or whether it's in the area of philosophy or theology, there can be a restless kind of searching for answers, you know, to clear up confusion. I did it for years and years. I'm one of those stupid people who've got a philosophy degree. Uh, searching and searching. And, uh, but people can get caught up in that, that searching of the mind. It's kind of like a restless reading book after book after book, trying to find the answer or coming to Dharma talks or Christian sermons, you know, time and time again and trying to find the answer. It'll make it okay. There isn't an answer. Mm -hmm. And it's not as though it can be interesting to read, like I can be interested in times in reading books on philosophy or or science, but it's the manner in which you read it. It's just interesting and curious, you know, and and you can be... (coughs) You can wonder at the mystery of life, mm-hmm. but that's very different from this restless kind of searching for an answer to something. Then another way that people search, which is more um, people who are um, uh, more political 
in mind is the searching for some kind of utopia. And people think that utopia is usually a, a more to do with the philosophy of the left, but it's also the, you know, can be the searching on both wings of politics, left and right. But somehow if we can just get the, the you know, the perfect social organisation that we can have heaven on earth, that seems a bit of a myth as well. We keep tweaking the way the system works. But the idea that there can be some kind of perfect society where no one will suffer anymore because we just organised it better and educated people better. Well, we could probably do better than what we're doing now, but um, whether we're going to actually solve this issue of dukkha through a utopia, well, some people might disagree with me, but I think that's a myth as well. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's other other ways people do it as well. Some people are searching constantly for uh, recognition and validation like maybe people in all kinds of walks of life artistics works um, walks of life or corporate works of life if if only I get that recognition then everything will be okay mm-hmm. and as we know there are like sports people who win Olympic medals so they get the recognition um, and then, like all of us, they grow older and they can't compete anymore and they go into depression, do you know, and, and end up in psychiatric clinics because they can't cope with the loss of recognition. Or people who have um, become musically famous, do you know, they, they write a great song and they get known or in a band and get well known and then they fall out of favour. Uh, and then depression sets in, drugs set in, do you know. So obviously that searching for recognition, that sort of bottomless pit of needing validation doesn't work either. There's many variations. Another one is people um, looking for just the right um, vitamin supplements and chemicals (laughs) that they'll put into their body. And if they just get the right chemical, everything will be all right. They're They're all kind of myths that we all get caught up in. Now, it would be all too simple to just say, well, just stop longing, you know, just, just stop searching for something else, just stop longing for something else. Um, but as human beings, we, don't, we can't just simply cut off that longing or the searching. Right? Um, it still goes on. It still goes on. And so it wouldn't be a very... Um, it wouldn't necessarily be a very clever or wise treatment to say, well, just stop longing. That's like like, um, people with alcohol or drug addictions who come along to see me. If I said to them, well, just stop drinking alcohol. (laughs) Stop shooting yourself with heroin. Off you go. It's not as simple as that. Because there is an addictive element to our nature. That's part of Buddhist psychology as well. Even though we may know you know, that it's not a good idea to be drinking or drugging all the time, we're still kind of addicted, looking for something outside of the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so really what the, what the more, um, the wiser resolution to this is, is to accept your longing, like to, to recognise that it's there, to recognise that there's still... There's this craving for looking for something outside of the moment. 
and to and to really uh, particularly in your zazen when you're quiet and connected with yourself or when you get hooked by this longing in everyday life be willing to acknowledge it that it's there just just be honest with yourself and recognize yeah it's it's there still looking for something outside of the moment and so if you're going to search then search a hundred percent right like totally burn yourself up with the searching you know or the longing and just be the longing then you'll become the longing at least that if you just become one with the searching rather than trying to cut it off then then that will be a wiser kind of way and a, and a more compassionate way um, of actually trying to deal be like be fully mindful of the fact that you're longing be fully mindful of the fact that you feel dissatisfied and uh, you'll see this in in koans study one of the one of the most wonderful koans which I can really relate to personally is the um, the, the koan of Bodhidharma putting the mind to rest and Bodhidharma as you know was the first founder of Zen and uh, he sat in a cave for 10 years and then his first student came along um, his name was um, Huey, Kai, Huey Ko and um, he sat outside in the snow for a long time you know, before Bodhidharma accepted him and, um, but when he did as a, as a student he said to Bodhidharma, I've not yet put my mind to rest. I haven't found peace of mind. And uh, Bodhidharma said, bring me your mind and I'll put it to rest. Mm-hmm. And then one assumes a long time passed before this actually occurred, you know, through more and more searching and so on for his mind. I've searched and searched everywhere, but I can't find my mind anywhere. And Bodhidharma said, see, put your mind to rest. I can really relate to that because not only was I stupid enough to do a philosophy degree, but I specialised in philosophy of mind, trying to search for my mind over and over again. So this koan was very meaningful to me when I came across it. Another story um, which has been related by uh, another Japanese Zen teacher along these lines. This is a true story apparently, but it might be the Amazon River, but there's a a river which meets the sea in South America and it's so wide, like the mouth of it is so wide you can't see the edges, so you'd think that you're at sea. And there was a boat which um, broke down and was stranded and anchored there for weeks on weeks and they were running out of water. Um, and eventually another boat, you know, came in sight, you know, and they raised a flag and brought them over and they, they yelled out to them, like, we're just dying of thirst, you know, and we, and we, we have no fresh water. And, this, and the, the message that came back was, lower your buckets. There was fresh water there all the time, but they thought they were at sea. Lower your buckets. So that's a good that's a good metaphor for us to to recognise when we're um, in the midst of this dissatisfaction, recognising that it's there. Um, lower your buckets, like someone in the midst of water crying out in thirst. 
And to end with, um, a more personal experience I had a couple of weeks ago. I was driving um, up to the northern beaches over the Roseville Bridge in the afternoon and in that, that big valley which was there was the most perfect rainbow that I'd ever seen in my life, the most perfect one. And it had a clear beginning and it was like the Harbour Bridge, it went right like that over and landed somewhere in Mossman. And, and the, the full spectrum of the rainbow was there, like just clear like that, you know, unbroken across the sky. Now there is a myth that there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Uh-huh. And we could go searching in Mossman or Roseville for the pot of gold. But where was the pot of gold? The rainbow was the pot of gold. Yeah. There's no need to search anywhere else for it. The rainbow was the pot of gold. And that's the nature of our life right now. Right now is the pot of gold. But we keep searching for the ends of the rainbow when it's right there in front of us. <laughs>